0: We follow up the prayer of that song by turning to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 24. We're going to read through to the end of 2 Kings 7. This is really one of those gripping sections of scripture that were it a movie would be R-rated. Let's work our way through this section of God's word. If you have a pew Bible there, you'll find this on page 312. 2 Kings 6. Starting in verse 24. Afterwards, Ben Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for 5 shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, A woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son, that we may eat him but she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body, and he said, May God do so to me, and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him, Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer is sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow, about this time, a saia of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, and two saias of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come. Let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, When they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain, on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two sails of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a say of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes. You shall not eat of it. So it happened to him. The people trampled him in the gate, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have heard words of truth and life from you in your scripture. Lord, would you enable us to believe them? Pray that in these moments, these truths would grip us, that we would be held by them, and that we would be changed uh, through them. Help us in this time. Come be our teacher, we ask in your son's mighty name. Amen. So we've reached the final sermon in our series on Elisha. I know I've been greatly helped by this section of God's word. I hope and pray that, that you have been too. And it's really the perfect text to arrive upon as we move into Easter week. Why is this the perfect text? Because this text teaches us that God saves people and his saving work often happens in surprising ways and often comes through surprising means. It reminds me of a story about Uh, Rico Tice who once shared in a sermon remember Rico Tice co-authored Christianity Explored materials that we use here at the church, he preached for us last year and he'll actually be back in April to do some evangelism training and and preach for us again on that Sunday, well he he tells a story of how he first stumbled upon Christ and it was back when he was in school and he attended this voluntary chapel service and the chaplain was speaking and quoted those words when Christ says "Um, forgive them father for they do not know what they are doing, and those words really gripped Rico, and they, they impacted him, and God began to do a work in his life. Now he would go on to confess, though, that the only reason he was at that service, the only reason he attended this voluntary service, was guess what? A pretty girl, <laughs> a pretty girl from the girls' school that he knew would be there, and that he enjoyed to walk, watch, uh, walk up and down the aisle for communion. I had one of our senior saints inform me straight after the first service that that was his sole motivation in coming to the church in the first place. Maybe your story is similar. I don't know. But Rico Ties comments, I went to see her and I stumbled upon the riches of Christ. I went to see her and I stumbled upon the riches of Christ. God's people are saved in surprising ways and God's people are saved through surprising means. Let's dive into our text in verse 24 of chapter 6 where as we arrive on the scene we find uh, squalor and stench and misery all around. In verse 24 we read that Samaria, the capital of Israel, has been besieged by the Syrian army. And as this uh, siege has uh, dragged on, a desperate famine has uh, devastated the community. And we can imagine the horrors of this historical account, these events which truly did take place. We can imagine mothers with tears and and panic in their eyes as it dawns on them that they are no longer able to feed their families. We can imagine fathers yelling and shouting and fighting around barren market stalls. We can imagine children with bloated bellies as they pick through the dirt trying to find a crumb to eat. In verse 25, we read uh, that things have got so bad that the rich have resorted to eating donkey head with a side of dove's dung, and that they're prepared to spend their life savings, about six and a half years worth of uh, income, in order to do so. In verses 26 through 29, we get this heartbreaking account where we see that the poor have fared Uh, much worse. Some have become so desperate that they've even surrendered their own uh, children uh, to the cooking pot. And the worst thing of all, the worst thing about this entire uh, narrative is that the Israelites, the people of God, have brought this upon themselves. How so? We know this because of Deuteronomy 28, which lays out the horrific consequences that will fall upon the people if they rebel against the Lord. If they reject God and sin against them, he tells them exactly what will happen to them. Let me read you this section from Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 52. It's almost too hard to speak. We read, They shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruits of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you. In the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man, we read, who is most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother and to the wife whom he embraces and to the last of his children whom he has left so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. It goes on, the most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter her afterbirth, which comes out from beneath her feet and her children whom she bears because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your times. Horrific scenes showing us that sometimes God punishes sin by leaving people to the wickedness of their own devices. See how the people are inflicting this curse upon themselves. As they have rejected him and continue to reject him, God has removed his restraining hand and left them to do as they want. And what they want is to do yet more evil. Here in Second Kings 6, we see the consequences of sin play out before our eyes in, in graphic, uh, gruesome fashion. Meanwhile, we read verse 32 that Elisha is at home. And the king of Israel sends his right-hand man to go and get him. The king blames God for what is happening, and he intends to take it out upon God's prophet, Elisha. And how, like the king, we are quick to blame the Lord when we get in trouble that's really of our own making. In verse 1 of chapter 7, when the darkness seems impenetrable, we finally get a word of hope. As Elisha says, the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, verse 1: uh, Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two sayahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Proverbs tells us that the, the power of the tongue is such that it can speak words of life or words of death, and the word of the Lord always speaks words of life. And here he says, within 24 hours, there's going to be a dramatic uh, turnaround. Uh, prices will no longer, well, will still, still won't uh, be cheap, but instead of this extortionate junk, you will be able to afford uh, basic groceries. In response, the king's servant issues this snort of cynical derision. Even the Lord himself couldn't pull this off. And we understand his cynicism. They've been in this desperate famine for weeks and months, and they've racked their brains to do all that they could do about it and have come up short. And so now he laughs and says, even God can't do this. If he can't understand it, there's no way that the Lord can do it. How often we limit God to our own understanding. And so Elisha replies, and he's he's swift and he's severe, and he says at verse 2, You shall see it with your own eyes but you shall not eat of it. You will see this blessing come to pass, but you won't get any of the benefit. Sure enough, later that night, there's commotion in the king's courtyard. Look at me with verse 11. The word spreads that the siege is over, that salvation has finally come. And in verse 12, the king is cynical about it, but the facts are there to be verified. And I wonder of all that happens next in this text, all that happens from verses 13 through 20, if you'd been there that night, what is the thing that would sort of really stick in your memory? What is the thing you would remember the most? Perhaps the eerie journey to the Syrian camp throughout the night, seeing that they have scattered and discarded clothes and other equipment on the way. Perhaps it would be that that strange moment when you arrived at the camp itself and see its sudden emptiness and and realize that you've been saved. Perhaps we can imagine, and and only for many of us and most of us, imagine the satisfaction of that first bite. We're having been truly hungry for weeks and months. Your taste buds suddenly burst back into life after an inactivity. Perhaps it would be verse 16, the joy in the faces of all the next morning as this good news spreads and mothers and fathers and children rush out of the city together, laughing and and celebrating and cheering and skipping with joy. Perhaps it would be verse 20, where the broken, crumpled body of the king's captain is left in the people's wake at the city gate, crushed for his cynicism, the only one who is not saved is the one who thought that God could not save. It's an astonishing scene that we have before us. And in the rest of our time, let's apply particularly two of the uh, best bits (laughs) from the verses that I skipped over, verses 3 through 10. Two lessons from these verses. First one is simply this. Our God is a God who saves in surprising ways. God saves in surprising ways. Why did the Syrians flee? Look at verse 6. Let's read verse 6. For the Lord made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled. For their lives salvation by grace 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 there's a powerful man in our text the king of israel is a powerful man and yet victory does not come about through his own power through his strategy through his tactics through some military insight or genius he is a passive bystander as events unfold. And not only is there a powerful man, but there's, there's a religious man in our text. Elisha, the prophet of God. But victory is not brought about by his knowledge, by his righteousness, by his holiness, through some religious prayer or ritual. Elisha himself is a passive bystander as events unfold. What the powerful and the religious were unable to accomplish is achieved how? Verse 6, by the whisper of God. The God who spoke and by mere verbal fiat brought the world into being, now whispers, and the Syrians are terrified. He breathes, and the Syrian army think they hear the apocalypse coming, drop everything, and run for their lives. And again, it's all of grace. This people who, have, um, who deserve a covenant curse and are now even inflicting this covenant curse upon themselves are instead Given grace, a remarkable deliverance instead of deserved punishment. now, of course, you see where I 'm going with this. If they were saved in a surprising way, how much more is that true of us? because our sin is every bit as serious as the wretched, the, the wretched scene we see described here, and yet to save us from our sin required more than a whisper it took more than a whisper to free us from the curse that we have brought upon ourselves required God to take that curse upon himself and so we don't um, eat our children in order that we might be saved but God did send his son to die that we might be saved surrendering his own child to the flames so that we might live there is No greater surprise, I would say, than the cross of Christ. And that's the work of grace. When you realize, my sin is so serious that a child had to die. And not just any child, but the Son of God. And yet God himself was pleased, we can say, to send him. Such was and is his love for you. Isn't that enough to make you run not from him in fear, but to him in love. Isn't that enough to see him stand with open arms, welcoming you home, make you know that you've been saved by grace and by grace alone? God saves us in surprising ways. Second key theme, though, that we see from these verses is that he doesn't just save uh, through in surprising ways. He also saves through... Surprising means. And I really want to dwell on this point and apply it to our hearts, especially as we approach Easter. God saves through surprising means. What do I mean? Well, who does God choose to make known this message of deliverance to the people? Does He choose people of high status or extraordinary intellect or some sort of remarkable spirituality? No. Look with me at verse 3. He chooses a group of unclean lepers. These are the walking dead that we reflected upon uh, when we thought about Naaman a few weeks ago. They are men who live their lives with rotting flesh and putrid fingers. They are miserable rejects who are cast outside of the city that they would just go somewhere else to die. They are beggars who have nothing to commend themselves in any way. They are a remarkably unworthy group of men and it is they who the Lord chooses to make this good news known. Well, what about these lepers? How, how do they discover the good news itself? Was it through their uh, remarkable intellect or through some religious pilgrimage or through some sort of sober meditation? No, look, verse 3 again. They're just sitting around the city gate, taking stock of their situation, and they conclude that we have three bad options and one outside bet. Bad option one, let's stay here and die of leprosy. Bad option two let's get back into Samaria, this capital of Israel, and die of starvation. Bad option three, let's go to the Syrian camp and die at their swords. Or outside bet four, maybe if we go to the Syrian camp, just maybe they won't kill us. Maybe we'll be provided for there. Now you understand, this is a terrible idea. This is an absolutely terrible idea. The Israelites, these lepers' own people, have cast them out the city to die. How are the Syrians going to feel when they rock up their, their enemies to say, hey, will you provide for us? Um, the lepers bringing as they do this uh, threat of infection and death and disease. You think the Syrians are going to welcome them with open arms? No, this is, this is the worst idea ever. And yet one of them shakes the magic eight ball, decides they've got nothing to lose, and off they go. From their perspective, how do they discover the news? Dumb luck luck. Well, okay, we say, but do they at least respond to this news in a noble manner? Do they find this great news and rush straight back to the city to share that they are all saved? Verse 8, no, they don't. What do they do when they find out this good news? They have a party. They eat and they drink and they get a pile of cash and they dress themselves in fancy Syrian clothes and then we read, they take a knee and do it all again. It's entirely selfish response. Okay, we say, well, at least when the lepers get around to bringing the good news, is, is there, do, they, do they have good motivation? Do they repent and turn with a kind of noble, high-minded compassion? Verse 9, we say, no. They say, we're not doing what's right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. They know that if they don't tell a people who are literally going to eat their children for breakfast, that salvation is at hand, they themselves, the lepers themselves, will be in big trouble. They are guilty, and they are afraid, and their fear motivates them. So, what do these lepers have going for them? (laughs) Not a lot. Not a lot is the answer. They're an unworthy, selfish, guilt-ridden group of cowards. This is who God has to work with, but they realize one thing. They realize, verse 9, this day is a day of good news this day is a day of good news they know that they've been given something beautiful and the beauty of this gift compels them to share you know where i'm going with this you know where i'm going with this how qualifying do you feel to be used by god let me tell you what qualifies me and let me be as bold as suggest it qualifies you unworthy selfish guilt-ridden cowards Lepers at the gate who've happened to stumble into camp at the right time. That's what qualified these lepers. That's what qualifies us. We are the reality of what God has to work with. So isn't it just as well that God saves through surprising means? That God saves through surprising means? Because we are the men and women who've been given something beautiful to share. And we've been given something even more beautiful than the deliverance of Samaria. We've been told according to the scriptures that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. So that if anyone wonders how their sins can be forgiven, if anyone fears guilt, fears death, fears hell, if anyone wonders how they can make it through this life, if anyone fears the present, if anyone fears the future, we are the ones who are able to say, this day, (laughs) this day, is a day of good news. This day is a day of good news. The love of Christ compels us as lepers at the gate who have found bread to go to other lepers and show them where they can find bread. And so, of course, We expect some different responses. We expect some to be cynical, like the king's servant. We expect some to be suspicious, like the king himself. But we also expect many will find rescue from certain death, because this day is a day of good news. And we trust the Lord with the outcome. Two men are looking through a window. One sees sun, the other only dust. It's up to the Lord who he gives eyes to see this great truth. But it's up to us to share this message. Why? Because we are God's surprising means to the world. The only issue for us this morning, this Easter, is who will you tell? Who will you tell? Let me close with a quick list for those of you who feel intimidated by this task, which is everyone. Okay? Um, perhaps you're on board but you don't know where to start. perhaps you're um, sort of feel perpetually guilty when the topic of evangelism comes up. Perhaps, worst of all, you have so hardened your heart on this topic that you plan on being no different the moment you leave this sanctuary. Wherever you are, uh, this list was helpful to me. I came across it at a conference in Berlin, Germany. I've seen a couple of iterations of it since then. I don 't know uh, who it. Um, began with it it certainly wasn't with me but 10 baby steps for sharing your faith you ready 10 baby steps for sharing your faith step one if you're not sure how to go about sharing your faith with someone if you have a friend a colleague a relative step one let them know that you follow jesus let them know that you're a christian now that you can do that right you kind of have this fear in your mind of this like apologetic debate where they'll have objections and you won't know what to say. Like worry about that later, okay? Step 1, let them let let them know that you believe in Jesus. Step 2, ask them about their beliefs and listen respect if, respectfully without saying anything. And this doesn't even have to be on the same day as step 1. You can do step 1 and then later do step 2. Find out what it is they believe and don't try and have any answers, just listen to them step three share a problem that you've had and let them know how your faith has really helped you share a problem you've had and let them know how jesus has made a difference let them know that you don't just go to church but that you have a relationship with god that makes a difference to your life step four allow them to share a problem they're having listen and tell them you'll pray Allow them to share a problem they're having and just listen to them. Don't feel you need to give them the answer. Don't feel that you have to know uh, all sorts of theology. Just listen to them and tell them that you'll pray for them. Step five, share your own story in a bit more detail. Share how it is that you became a Christian. We have all our new members here at the church write out their testimony and then give their testimony to the uh, elders. This is Your testimony is that the story of how you came to know Christ. Uh, if you're a member here, look over what you wrote. Rehearse that in your mind so that you're ready and will feel fluent when you have the opportunity to share how you came to Christ. Step six, having done these things, share a book with them or a recording with them or a sermon of some sort with them and, and just ask them what they think about it. Give them some material find out what they think. The step the seven, invite them to church. Invite them here to MPC. And don't do it in an apologetic way do it like you're excited you know do it like you believe there is bread here and that in their spiritual famine they need to be fed and i promise you we work really hard and we don't always succeed but we work really hard to make this a place you feel comfortable bringing a friend to you know that feeling like you bring someone and then the pastor says something that just makes you cringe you know pastor says just something outrageous or so Christian or just so kind of like ah, he said that with my friend here we work really hard not to do that we really believe that the cross of christ is offensive enough <laughs> so that we don't need to be right um, and you can be sure of that you can be sure that we are we're doing doing our best <laughs> number eight read the bible with them there is power in this book that people do not understand and so for you to say hey this is The most influential and highest selling book in the history of the world. And DC people like to feel like they're educated and so like to feel like, yeah, I kind of have a handle on what's going on. So challenge them to, hey, try reading some of it. Try reading some of it. Let's talk about it and see what you think. Pick the Gospel of John, for example. Work your way through together. Nine, ask them about their objections to Christianity. As you've walked through this process with them, find out what makes sense to them, what doesn't make sense to them, what do they have questions about. Ten, consider taking them along to Christianity Explored. This course that we run on the very foundations of Christianity. Uh, run it three times a year. Next course starts up after Easter week. A great opportunity for people who have, have questions or thoughts or struggles or difficulties even uh, to come and find out about the gospel. God saves in surprising ways, whispers and a cross. God saves through surprising means. Pretty girls, lepers, people like you, people like me. After I pray, our elders will come to serve communion as our worship team leads us in a song of reflection. And I ask you to use this song, use this time to reflect upon that solitary question. This Easter, who do you need to tell? Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we praise you for saving in such surprising ways. And we praise you for saving through such surprising means. Father, we ask that you would make us bold. And Son, we ask that you would make us courageous. And Spirit, we ask that you would lead us where our trust is without borders. That we would walk upon the waters wherever you might call us. We ask you to take us deeper than our feet could wander so that we will find our faith being made stronger in the presence of Jesus our Savior. It's it's in him his perfect and matchless name we pray these things. Amen.